This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, Dr. Craig debates Professor A.C. Grayling on the topic, Belief in God Makes Sense in Light of Tsunamis. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org. William Lane Craig and A.C. Grayling debating whether God makes sense in light of tsunamis. Let the debate begin. Please welcome our first speaker proposing the motion that belief in God is reasonable, Professor William Lane Craig. Thank you, and good evening. I'm very grateful to the Oxford Union for the privilege of debating here this evening on this most important topic, and I thank you for your warm welcome. I'm also grateful as well for Professor Grayling's participation in the event this evening. And I trust that our discussion tonight will not only be an intellectual exercise for you, but will also be a significant help in your own personal spiritual journey. Now, when we ask whether belief in God makes sense in light of tsunamis, we're posing in a provocative way the problem that traditionally philosophers have called the problem of evil. This problem is undoubtedly the greatest obstacle to belief in God. When we consider the depth and the extent of suffering in the world, then it makes it hard to believe in God. Maybe we should just all become atheists. But that would be a pretty big step to take. How can we be sure that God does not exist? Maybe there's a reason why God permits all the suffering in the world. Maybe it all fits into some grand scheme of things that we can only dimly envision, if at all. How do we know? Well, despite the undeniable emotional impact of the problem of evil, I'm persuaded that as a strictly rational, intellectual problem, it does not constitute a disproof of the existence of God. Let me explain why. Traditionally, atheists have claimed that the coexistence of God and evil is logically impossible. That is to say, there is no possible world in which God and evil both exist. Since we know that evil exists, the argument goes, it follows logically that God does not exist. It is this version of the problem of evil that Professor Grayling recently defended in his debate with Keith Ward in The Prospect. So, according to the logical version of the problem of evil, the two statements on your handout, A, an omnipotent, omnibenevolent God exists, and B, evil exists, are logically incompatible. The difficulty for the atheist, however, is that statements A and B are not, at face value, logically inconsistent. There's no explicit contradiction between them. If the atheist thinks that they're implicitly contradictory, then he must be assuming some hidden premises that would serve to bring out the contradiction and make it explicit. But what are those premises? Well, the atheist seems to be assuming two things. One, if God is omnipotent, then he can create any world that he desires. And two, if God is omnibenevolent, then he prefers a world without evil over a world with evil. The atheist reasons that since God is omnipotent, he could create a world without evil, and since he is omnibenevolent, he would prefer a world without evil. Therefore, if God exists, evil cannot exist. 
This version of the problem of evil has been seriously undermined by the incisive critique of the philosopher Alvin Plantinga. Plantinga notes that the atheist must show that both of the critical assumptions, one and two, are necessarily true in order for the argument to be logically valid. But, Plantinga argues, if it is even possible that human beings have free will, then one and two are not necessarily true. Take assumption one. If free will is possible, then it's false that an omnipotent God can create just any world that he desires. God's being omnipotent does not imply that he can do logical impossibilities, such as make a round square or a married bachelor. But it is logically impossible to make someone freely choose to do something. Thus, if God grants people genuine freedom to choose as they like, then it's impossible for him to determine what their choices will be. All he can do is create the circumstances in which a person is able to make a free choice and then, so to speak, stand back and let him make that choice. Now, what this implies is that there are worlds which are possible in and of themselves, but which God is incapable of creating. Philosophers say that such worlds are not feasible for God. So the first assumption made by the atheist, namely that an omnipotent God can create any world that he desires, is not necessarily true. Now this is important because for all we know, in every feasible world where God creates free creatures, some of those creatures freely choose to do evil. Thus it's possible that every world feasible for God, which contains free creatures, is a world with sin and evil. And therefore, the atheist's argument on this ground alone is invalid. But what about the second assumption? That if God is omnibenevolent, then he prefers a world without evil over a world with evil. Again, such an assumption is not necessarily true. The fact is that in many cases, we allow suffering to occur in a person's life because we have some morally sufficient reason for permitting it. I'm reminded of a remark once made by C.S. Lewis. What do people mean when they say, I'm not afraid of God because I know that he is good. Have they never even been to the dentist? God may permit suffering in our lives in order to achieve some morally sufficient overriding end. Thus, even though God is omnibenevolent, he might well have morally sufficient reasons for permitting pain and suffering in the world. Consequently, the second assumption of our atheist friends is also not necessarily true. The argument is thus doubly invalid. The bottom line is that atheists have not been able to show that either of their key assumptions is necessarily true, which they must do in order to sustain the claim that the coexistence of God and evil is logically impossible. The atheist who makes this claim has unwittingly shouldered a tremendously heavy burden of proof which no one has been able to sustain. Now, Plantinga argues that we can go even further than this. Not only has the atheist failed to prove that God and evil are inconsistent, but we can, on the contrary, prove that God and evil are consistent. In order to do so, all we have to do is provide some proposition that is compatible with God's existence and which entails that evil exists. And the following is such a proposition on your handout. C. God could not have created a world that had so much good as the actual world 
but had less evil, both in terms of quantity and quality, and moreover, God has morally sufficient reasons for permitting the evil that exists. So long as this proposition is even possible, it shows that God and the evil in the world are logically compatible. In summary, the atheist who champions the logical version of the problem of evil bears the burden of proof to show that there is no possible world in which A and B are true. That is an enormously heavy burden which has proved to be unsustainable. After centuries of discussion, contemporary philosophers, including uh, virtually all atheists and agnostics, have come to admit that the logical problem of evil has been solved. In the words of the prominent philosopher William Alston, it is now acknowledged on almost all sides that the logical argument from evil is bankrupt. Now perhaps Professor Grayling would retreat at this point to the position that while the coexistence of God and evil are logically possible, nonetheless it's highly improbable. So given the evil in the world, it's improbable that God exists. This probabilistic version of the problem, however, faces insuperable difficulties. Let me just mention three this evening. Number one, we're not in a position to assess inductively the probability that God lacks morally sufficient reasons for permitting the evils that occur. The atheist seems to think that if God has morally sufficient reasons for permitting the evils that occur, then these reasons should be obvious to us. But there's absolutely no grounds for that assumption. The transcendent God sees the end of history from its beginning and providentially orders history so that his purposes are ultimately achieved through human free decisions. In order to achieve his ends, God may well have to put up with various evils along the way, evils which appear pointless or unnecessary to us within our limited frame of reference, may be seen to have been justly permitted within God's wider frame of reference. We simply have no idea of the natural and moral evils that might be involved in order for God to arrange the circumstances and free agents in them necessary to some intended purpose. Nor can we always discern the reasons why such a provident God um, might have for permitting some evil to enter our lives. To say this is not, is not to appeal to mystery, but rather to point to the inherent cognitive limitations that frustrate attempts to say on inductive grounds that it's improbable that God has a morally sufficient reason for permitting some particular evil. Ironically, in other contexts, atheists recognize these cognitive limitations. One of the most damaging objections to utilitarian ethical theory, which says that we should always act so as to maximize the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people, is that it is quite simply impossible for us to estimate which action we might perform will ultimately lead to the greatest amount of happiness in the world. Because of our cognitive limitations, actions which appear disastrous in the short term may redound to the greatest good, while some short-term boon may pre uh, prove to uh, issue in untold misery. Once we contemplate God's providence over the whole of history, then it becomes evident how hopeless it is for limited observers to speculate 
on the probability of God's having morally sufficient reasons for the evils that we see. We're simply not in a good position to assess such probabilities with any confidence. Secondly, Christian theism entails doctrines that increase the probability of the coexistence of God and evil. The atheist maintains that if God exists, then it's improbable that the world would contain the evil it does. But if the biblical God exists, then it's not in fact so surprising that evil exists. Thus, evil is not so improbable on Christian theism. For according to Christian theism, the chief purpose of life is not happiness, but rather the knowledge of God. One reason the problem of evil seems so difficult is that people naturally tend to assume that if God exists, then his purpose for human life is happiness in this life. God's role is to provide a comfortable environment for his human pets. But on the Christian view, this is false. We are not God's pets. And the goal of human life is not happiness, per se, but rather the knowledge of God, which in the end will bring true and everlasting human fulfillment. Many evils occur in life which may be utterly pointless with respect to the goal of producing human happiness, but they may not be pointless with respect to producing a deeper knowledge of God. Because God's ultimate goal for humanity is the knowledge of himself, which alone can bring eternal happiness to people, history cannot be seen in its true perspective apart from considerations pertinent to the kingdom of God. It may well be the case that natural and moral evils are part of the means God uses to draw people into his eternal kingdom. Moreover, God's purpose is not restricted to this life, but spills over beyond the grave into eternal life. When God asks his children to bear horrible suffering in this life, it is only with the prospect of a heavenly joy and recompense that is beyond all comprehension. And the longer we spend in eternity, the more the sufferings of this life shrink by comparison to an infinitesimal moment. The person in heaven looking back would say, uh, no matter how awful his pain, no matter what he suffered, I would go through it a million, million times over to know this joy. Thus, if Christian theism is true, the existence of evil is not so improbable. Number three, relative to the full scope of the evidence, God's existence is probable. Probabilities are relative to one's background information. Thus, with a probability argument, we always need to ask, probable with respect to what? Now, apply this principle to the probabilistic problem of evil. The atheist says God's existence is improbable. But with respect to what? To the evil in the world? Well, if that's all you consider for your background information, then I think it's hardly surprising that God's existence would appear improbable relative to that alone. But that's not the interesting question. The interesting question is whether God's existence is improbable relative to the full scope of the evidence. And the Christian theist will uh, insist that we consider not just the evil in the world, but rather all the evidence relevant to God's existence. Now, obviously, I don't have time to discuss it here, but in my published work, I've written extensively in defense of various arguments for the existence of God. I'm convinced that even given any improbability that evil throws upon God's existence, God's existence is still quite probable on the basis of the evidence. In any case, it would be premature to conclude that God's existence is improbable unless one has thoroughly examined and weighed all the relevant evidence. In conclusion, then, 
neither the logical nor the probabilistic problem of evil constitutes a justification of atheism. The rational man is well within his rights in thinking that the existence of God makes sense, even in light of tsunamis. Before we began our debate, uh, I uh, said to Professor Craig that I was prepared to concede victory this evening to him in the matter of um, times. Uh, he's got a much more handsome tie than I've got. I, I, I wore this one because, I, as, the, as the token, um, or what, what a theist would call an atheist, although, because I also don't believe in fairies and so on, I prefer to be an atheist, I, I thought I'd better wear a, a sort of fairly sober tie in order to. Appear to be a bit more respectable than I am. Um, but I, I'm tremendously impressed, by the way, at the, the number of you present here on, on a Friday evening in Oxford. I think things must have changed since I was an undergraduate. Yeah, there must be fewer facilities. But at any rate, I'm, I'm delighted to, to, to see you all. Um, let me just uh, uh, begin with a, a remark about the uh, tsunami, which, um, as you know, killed several hundred thousand people, among them small children and elderly people, a great majority of them were not um, uh, Christians, they were people of other faiths and, and uh, all faiths, I suppose, and of no faith. Um, so that uh, uh, I suppose one would need an assumption to the effect that the, that the deity, if uh, he, she or it, um, caused it or countenanced it or wasn't able to stop it, uh, nevertheless, it would have in some sense to be the same deity for all those people. Uh, and if there is a greater good envisaged in the event, then it would have to be one that um, is somehow captured in very different forms in these different faiths. Uh, and I, I leave that point hanging in the air because I think it's something that we need to, to bring up a bit later on, remembering that there was a competition between the faiths. After all, the Christian will tell you that uh, the founder of that religion said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. It seems rather bad news for very many of the people who were swept away by that great wave. Still, let's begin at the beginning. Um, we have to wade our way through a, a, a number of, of ifs before we get to the point that we need to discuss tonight. If there are supernatural entities or phenomena in the universe, and by that I mean things that don't fall into the category of frogs and clouds and galaxies and human beings and so on, subject to description in terms of natural laws and the rest. So if there are supernatural entities or phenomena in the universe, and if these supernatural phenomena are in some way uh, active, if they're agents, and that's just the grammatical simplicity of talk in terms of one such thing, call it X for the moment. If X is an agent that just can do things and in some way uh, react to uh, the um, facts in the, in the universe. And if further that uh, um, supernatural entity is not merely an agent, but also an intelligent one, has intelligence, and if, uh, yet again, it's not merely intelligent, but also interested in this bit of the universe with the people in it, uh, then we need to ask ourselves the question, what, if anything, can be inferred about the nature of uh, such an entity, if we allow ourselves so many uh, ifs, um, from the evidence that we have available to us? So if, if there's a supernatural entity which is intelligent and interested in this bit of the universe, um, what, what can we say about what that entity might be like? on the basis of what the world seems like to us. And we're, we're 
remembering here that the evidence includes tsunamis and childhood cancers and things like that. And the answer would have to be something like this. At first blush, at any rate, before the theologians get to work on us, it would seem that that intelligent and interested agency in the universe would have to be either malevolent or, if not impotent, then only quasi-potent. Okay, so uh, malevolent we could understand. In fact, the, the Old Testament is full of suggestions that if you were a Midianite or um, someone like that, then the deity might indeed be reasonably malevolent towards you. So, but if not um, malevolent, then they're not omnipotent because constrained in some way in its power to um, lessen the suffering that uh, is experienced by the creation with which it's, to which it stands in some relation. Now the answer to that second point is to say, well, um, maybe it is benevolent, uh, but its omnipotence is not exercised in a way that would ensure a reduction of the amount of suffering that there is in the universe, because it has a purpose, a greater purpose that the suffering should in some ways subserve. Now, both those points were made by Professor Craig in his presentation, and he was talking about uh, the um, hidden assumptions made by the person who doesn't believe in fairies and so on. But if one, if God is omnipotent, he can create any world that he desires, and he disputed that assumption, and that's the point that I just raised about uh, quasi-potence uh, or lack of potency. And the second one, about God's benevolence, that if God is om omnibenevolent, he prefers a world in which evil doesn't exist. And he raised the point in connection with that too. And you will notice that the points actually don't sit quite consistently with one another, because the answer that he gave to the first point is, so God is not quite omnipotent, because there are some things that he can't do. For example, he can't uh, do logically impossible things, or we, we know that already because he can't eat himself for breakfast and that kind of thing. But uh, what, what he also can't do is to create a world which has free will in it, required incidentally, so that we can answer problems about the existence of moral evil in the world, Remembering that if there is a God who is the creator of the world and is responsible ultimately for everything that happens in it, then he is responsible for murder and rape and the rest of it. And so in order to block that uh, consequence, um, we have to think in terms of uh, the uh, creation, uh, parts of the creation in the way, that's us having free will. So he's not quite omnipotent. There's a, a derogation from that point. But as to the omnibenevolence, well, he's willing to let suffering occur in the world for a greater good. And that if only we could see subspecie what that greater good is, then no matter how great the suffering, say of grief, of loss, of, of terror, of uh, uh, being faced with a, uh, an unkind or cruel nature, no matter what the experience of suffering might be, nevertheless it subserves some, some greater good. And we can't see what that is because we have uh, finite minds. Now, I, I just um, mentioned in passing to lead to one side the discussion, the thought that... Uh, invoking the finitude of our cognitive powers, and our inability to see what that greater good might be, is, as it seems to me, a very helpful and convenient argument for the theologian, because once one pulls the curtain of mystery across things, then, of course, one can say and believe anything. But the inconsistency between the two points is this. If you derogate somewhat from God's uh, omnipotence, then you're, in effect, saying, well, he can't, in a world which contains free will agents and so on, he can't have uh, prevented the degree of suffering that is uh, present in the world. The second point, he's nevertheless willing to let suffering occur for a greater good. So 
if you think that suffering is necessary for a greater good, then and you permit it to happen, then the implication seems to be that you could do something about not letting it happen, but since you've got this greater good in mind, uh, you, you do let it happen. So what Ron wants to say to, to the theologian is, well, which do you want? Do you want him to be not quite omnipotent, or do you want him to be omnipotent but willing to let suffering happen so that a greater good can ensue? Which of those two things do you want? Now, I think that the response that, that one has to make to at least the second of those two points is this. Uh, either um, we are created in God's image, so, so it is written somewhere, or much more probably we create God in our own image. And so our thought of, of what to expect or to believe about an agency which is intelligent and interested in a world like ours would have to be derived in some way from our own experience of relationship with others. And the one that um, provides us with most materials is the experience of uh, fatherhood. I'm a, um, a father, and uh, I'm rather fond of my children. Occasionally they are of me also. And I sometimes wonder to myself just how much suffering I would subject them to for the greater good that I see that they don't for their lives. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that um, going to the dentist is quite comparable with being drowned in a tsunami, but I am quite confident that I wouldn't drown any of them in a tsunami, however annoying they can sometimes occasionally be, uh, in the hope that it might teach them a lesson or stop me from being irritated in future or some greater good of that kind. So from my own experience of fatherhood, I'm very puzzled by the thought that there could be an interested and intelligent being whose interest wasn't malevolent, even just a neutral sort of interest, uh, conscious of the fact that we have uh, emotions and sensations. Emotions of fear, sensations of pain as, as possibilities. Emotions of joy and sensations of pleasure as possibilities. And thinking with respect to them, especially if you had some responsibility for them, thinking that nevertheless you could sub subject them even to the most extreme of challenges to their emotional and uh, physical and sensory well-being in the, the hope that uh, some greater good would thereby be subserved. And the reason why I think that that seems a deeply suspicious move to make on the part of theologians is that it takes us back to the point about the um, alleged omnipotence of God. If God is omnipotent, then uh, he could create a world which has free will of beings in it and which doesn't have pain and suffering in it. What's the logical inconsistency there? What the theologian has to argue in response to that point is that the world could not, could not, and it is the strength of the modality there that actually occurs in statement C, that God could not have created a world with as much good as this world contains unless it contained the degree of evil, of natural evil that it has in it. Now why should one accept that? If one accepts that God is genuinely omnipotent, then he could create a world which maximizes the good and uh, minimizes or perhaps dispenses altogether with uh, pain and suffering. One could imagine, for example, him creating a world which was uh, entirely intellectual. After all, although many of our agonies are intellectual ones, I mean, some of us come up to schools in four weeks' time and have been subjected at the moment to the most terrible intellectual cruelties, um, most, most of the suffering that people think of in the world tends to take the form of physical suffering. So we think about uh, deprivation at one end and at the other end the excruciating pain of certain kinds of illnesses or the terrible emotional um, pain of grief and loss and, and fear. Um, why is it that those things should be centrally or essentially um, required for a world to have as much good in it as, as this one does? 
or arguably, of course, this world doesn't contain as much um, uh, uh, good in it as uh, there could be, given that the quantum of suffering in the world is as it is. Remember this also, that um, some of the natural evils that occur in the world do so as a result of our agency, for example, our effect on the environment and uh, our, our um, spreading of diseases one to another uh, and the rest. And so that there is a complex relationship between um, the two kinds of evil that are in the world, moral and natural. And if the natural evil that exists in the world is somehow willed by a, a deity for a greater good, then the instrumental action of moral evil in the world would have to be willed by that deity too, and wouldn't just be an artifact of uh, having free will. So my thought is this. Once you have taken the long route through a whole series of suppositions, thinking that the world might contain a certain sort of entity, and this entity uh, might have the right kind of character to understand and appreciate our emotional and sensational lives, and might be interested in some way in those emotions and sensations. Then the question, uh, if you really, really wanted to accept that view, then the question arises with great urgency as to what kind of being that could be, consistently with the way the world in fact is. And it's very interesting to notice that uh, in the development of thinking about the relationship that uh, individual human beings have with their world, with the world containing the possibilities of suffering and the rest, there have been dramatic, dramatically different conceptions of that relationship. For example, in the medieval period, um, contemptus mundi literature was a, a great feature. The Da Vinci Code of the day was the book that told you that uh, the world is a veil of tears and suffering and that all you have to do is endure and pay your tithes and you would eventually get to heaven. And that what followed that period in the Renaissance was a rediscovery of the joy and the beauty of the world and the possibility to pleasure in the world and a refocusing of attention by human beings on things that are imminent, things that are here in the world, and a desire to maximize the pleasure and the enjoyment that came from understanding that world, from um, appreciating the beauties in it, and from adding to them. Uh, a world, in other words, where the good was conceived as lying in things that spoke to the emotions and the sensations of human beings. Well, according to uh, a theory which has it that um, suffering is some part of the production of the greater good, there would have to be questions asked about the degree of consistency between the conception that the Renaissance thinkers had about the good and that conception about the need that the world has for there to be suffering and pain in it. And anybody who takes the sort of position that I do is very skeptical about the idea that there are supernatural agencies intelligent enough and interested enough in us uh, to know about us that we can suffer uh, and enjoy, that we can um, feel fear and that we can feel joy. Anybody, uh, any being who had that conception of us would have to be quite conscious of the effect that its agency had in respect of what we uh, regard as being in our interests and for our good. So in the, when we pose the question, is it reasonable to believe that there could be a deity, and I think you know, this, the concept of God is a very capacious one and has to do with a great number of different tradition, traditions and definitions of what such a, a being could be. But when, when we ask that question, generally, generally speaking, we think of almighty and, and uh, all-loving deity. And can it be reasonable to think that the universe is governed by and even contains such a thing? And I think the answer has to be not. Thank you.
thank you, Professor Grayling, for those interesting uh, remarks in response to my opening statement. You'll remember that I distinguish between two versions of the problem of evil, the logical version and the probabilistic version. And I suggested that the uh, logical version is no longer defended today, uh, that it has been given up because it's been recognized that the atheist cannot sustain the enormous burden of proof this involves. But so far as I could understand Professor Grayling's position in his opening speech, he's sticking by the logical version of the problem of evil. Despite that, he's going to maintain it. Now, he said that looking at the world, we would conclude the deity must be either impotent or malevolent. But to say that is to assume precisely those two hidden assumptions. Namely, that if God is omnipotent, he can create any world that he desires. And if he's omnibenevolent, he would prefer a world without evil over a world with evil. And so if the uh, response is not to be question-begging, we need to see some argument on behalf of those two premises. And you remember I suggested that those cannot be proved. First, if free will is even possible, it follows that an omnipotent God cannot create every world that he uh, might desire. Now, Professor Grayling responded by saying, well, uh, Dr. Craig, you're qualifying divine omnipotence. On your view, God is not quite omnipotent. And I want to protest against that and say that's not at all accurate. Historically, divine omnipotence has always been defined in terms of God's ability to do whatever is logically possible. The only philosopher that I know of who thought God could do logical impossibilities was René Descartes. But everyone else has always said omnipotence means the ability to do whatever is logically possible. But God's inability to make a round square or a married bachelor is not an inability on God's part because there is no such thing as a round square or a married bachelor. Those are just uh, self-contradictory combinations of words that have no referent. So God can do anything, anything that is logically possible. And as I say, it is logically impossible to make someone freely do something. And I don't think that Professor Greenan grasped the difference between a possible world and a feasible world. There are possible worlds, logically, where everyone always chooses to do the right thing. But those worlds may not be feasible for God because if God created the agents in them, in the circumstances envisioned, the agents might choose differently, might go the wrong way. So that given uh, that it's logically impossible to make someone freely choose to do something, not every logically possible world is actualizable by God, only feasible worlds. And therefore, this is no qualification of divine omnipotence to say there are worlds that God is incapable of creating. Now, if you do want to go with Descartes and say, well, God's omnipotence means he can do the logical impossible, well, then there's no problem with evil at all, because God can bring it about that he exists and that evil exists, even though these are logically incompatible with each other. So if you go that route, you've completely dissolved any problem of evil. Now, what about the second assumption that God prefers a world over evil, uh, without evil, over a world with evil? And I suggested that if a, a we have morally sufficient reasons for permitting pain and suffering, then sometimes we do allow it. Now here, Professor Grayling says, but a father wouldn't allow the, his children to suffer so terribly. I want to say a couple of things here. First, the father analogy is terribly misleading. Uh, we must not compare God to a human father when it comes to moral responsibility uh, because they are so different. God, we have a moral obligation to worship God, but any human father who demanded worship from his children would be egomaniacal. 
so that the relationship between a child and his human father is completely different from our moral obligations toward God. Moreover, a human father doesn't have certain rights vis-a-vis -vis his child that God has toward us. God is our creator and sustainer, the author and giver of life. A human father doesn't have the right to take the life of his own child. But if God wanted to take my life this evening, that's his prerogative. Uh, it is in his hands when I live and when I die. So the moral obligations between a father and, and his child are utterly different from God's relationship with us. But in any case, the point remains unrefuted. Even the human father will sometimes permit suffering in the life of his child because of a morally sufficient overriding reason. He wouldn't permit perhaps terrible suffering, but if he has a morally sufficient reason, he'll permit it. And it is possible that God could have morally sufficient reasons for permitting horrible uh, and terrible suffering in this world. And as long as that's even possible, the atheist has failed to shoulder the burden of proof to show that this second assumption is true. And it's so important for us to remember here, it's not the theist who bears the burden of proof here. It's the atheist who is claiming that A and B are logically incompatible. It's the atheist who bears the burden of proof to show that these hidden assumptions are true. All I have to do is simply undercut them by saying, well, it's possible that they're not true. The atheist must prove they're necessarily true, and until he does that, he can't carry his case. But remember, I said we can go a step further. We can actually prove that A and B are logically compatible with each other on the basis of C. C doesn't even need to be true. As long as it's just possibly true, it proves that there is a possible world in which God and evil coexist. And I didn't hear any response from Professor Grayling to that point. In short, the logical problem of evil is just not defended anymore in the philosophical community. Peter Van Inwagen, in the Philosophical Perspectives of 1991, writes, it used to be widely held that evil was incompatible with the existence of God, that no possible world contained both God and evil. So far as I am able to tell, this thesis is no longer defended. So let me just simply, in the interest of debate, go on to the probabilistic problem, even though Professor Grayling didn't discuss it. I suggested three reasons that the probabilistic problem of evil uh, faces insuperable difficulties. First, that we're not in a good position to assess these probabilities inductively. In a very important article in Philosophical Perspectives of 1991, William Alston, uh, in a classic article on the evidential problem of evil, lists six cognitive limits on us that make it in principle impossible for us to judge that God does not have morally sufficient reasons for permitting the evil in the world. Let me list these. Number one, lack of data. Uh, our ignorance of the distant future or the distant past, our ignorance of the ultimate constitution of the universe, the secrets of the human heart. Two, complexity greater than we can handle. For example, trying to understand different systems of natural law and which different laws of nature operate, we, we have no clue about what systems are available to God. Two, the difficulty of knowing what is metaphysically possible. How do we know what logically imaginable worlds are actually metaphysically possible? Four, our ignorance of the full range of possibilities. We don't know how these are restricted. Five, our ignorance of the full range of values. That is to say, there may be unknown goods that God brings about that we are not even aware of. And six, the limits of our capacity to make well-considered value judgments. That is to say, to be able to compare different possible worlds with a view toward determining which world would be the best. 
Now, in my opening speech, I gave an illustration of just one of those cognitive limits, namely our lack of data. And I illustrated this from utilitarianism. We have no idea when an action is performed, whether it will ultimately produce great happiness or great disaster. And therefore, utilitarianism is wrong in saying that an action is right or wrong based on its consequences, because we don't know the ultimate consequences. But let me give another example from current science. In chaos theory, scientists have been able to show that certain macroscopic systems are highly sensitive to the tiniest perturbations. The flutter of a butterfly's wing uh, in a jungle in West Africa can set in motion forces that will eventually issue in a hurricane over the Atlantic Ocean. And yet no one looking at that little butterfly would be able, even in principle, to predict such an outcome. Another example from popular culture. In the movie Sliding Doors with Gwyneth Paltrow, uh, we see how a young woman is rushing into the underground to catch a subway train. And just as she approaches the train, the doors begin to slide shut. At that point, the film splits in two, and one half of the film narrates her life as it would have happened if she had made it through the doors. The other half of the film shows what would happen to her if the doors closed before she got there. And what's interesting in this film is the one life turns into happiness, success, everything she does is great, whereas the other life goes from bad to worse, disaster, failure, misery, all because of this one seemingly trivial incident of catching those sliding doors. Moreover, whether she got through those sliding doors was based upon whether her path was momentarily blocked on the steps by a little girl playing with her dolly on the, on the handrail. And of course, what the movie doesn't show is that little girl's playing with the dolly on the handrail was also contingent upon, for example, how many uh, or how quickly she buttoned her blouse when dressing for school that morning, or how much muesli her mother put in the bowl, how long it would take to eat breakfast, or whether her father had to stop to tie a shoe on the way into the underground. Uh, you begin to see that these contingencies result in simply unpredictable situations. But here's the really interesting part of the film is the shock ending. At the end of the movie, you suddenly discover that in the life in which everything is going hunky-dory and just super, she's suddenly killed in a car accident, and her life comes to an end. Whereas in the miserable, uh, unhappy life, that life turns around, and it turns out that that is the really good life after all. This illustrates, I think, so poignantly how we're simply not in a position to judge when things come into our life that God doesn't have a morally sufficient reason for permitting it. William Austin concludes, we are simply not in a position to justifiably assert that God would have no sufficient reason for permitting evil. And if that is right, the probabilistic argument from evil is in no better shape than its late lamented logical cousin. Second, I suggested that Christian theism increases the probability of God and evil in the world because God's happy, uh, purpose in the world is not happiness, but the knowledge of himself to bring people freely to salvation. Well, how is God doing on this job? In 1990, some fascinating statistics were released from the U.S. Center for World Mission, plotting the number of committed Christians in the world toward non-Christians in the world. In the year AD 100, there were 360 non-Christians for every committed Christian in the world. By AD uh, 1000, there were 220 non-Christians per committed Christian in the world. By 1900, there were 27 non-Christians for every committed Christian in the world. By 1989, there were only seven non-Christians for every committed Christian in the world. 
God is building his kingdom down through history. And it is not at all improbable that natural and moral evils are part of the means which he uses to bring people into his kingdom and to give them eternal life and everlasting happiness, in comparison to which the sufferings of this life will diminish to infinitesimal proportions. Thank you, thank you for that, and uh, thank you to uh, Professor Craig uh, too. Uh, it's a very, very long time since I've, I've heard a sermon. Um, my, my first point uh, is that uh, one always finds oneself in a difficulty in this kind of the situation in which I find myself at the moment, uh, be, being some, someone who is the token a- atheist here. Because I say, I begin by saying, okay, okay, just suppose it is a profoundly improbable, and, uh, you know, um, idea that there is some being out there in the universe that has these properties of being you know, interested in us and, and aware and understands our situations. I just suppose that there is such a being and uh, you know, he loves us and is our father and all the rest of it. And I find when I have debates with theologians that that's not what's meant at all. In fact, the goalpost, the divine goalpost, keeps moving. Every time you say anything about this, what, what such a being would have to be like, you find that that's not what's meant. So. So when I say, um, you know, we either create God in our image or he creates us in his image, then our best understanding of what that relationship would be, the creator who cares about us and all that is a sort of fatherly relationship. So I, as a father, tend not to drown my children in that often and so on. You know, that, 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 that attempt to try to get some grip on the moral realities here, I find is a misleading analogy. So, so we flounder because the goalposts do move all the time. But still, let's do our best. Um, possible, a, a logically possible world may not be a feasible world. But I can understand that a logically possible world might not be a desirable world. It would be, be logically possible that God could be a God and that God could create free will beings and also that there's no natural evil in that world. But Professor uh, uh, Craig says that that's not feasible for God. Um, I, I, this is like a jigsaw puzzle because I've got to keep several pieces uh, going at the same time. I have to remember that we don't have a great deal of knowledge about God's nature, so bear that in mind. But we know enough to know that it's not feasible for God's purposes that although there's a logically possible world in which there is free will but no natural evil, that's not feasible for God. Although I find the distinction between logical possibility and feasibility so fine and subtle a one that I don't actually see it. I can see a distinction between logical possibility and desirability. I don't see the difference in possibility and feasibility. Uh, then uh, Preskate uh, talked about um, God having morally sufficient reasons for suffering. That's a fine sounding phrase, morally sufficient reasons for suffering. Um, and that, you know, if, even if we don't know what it is, and, and we're here once again behind the veil of, of ignorance, nevertheless we could take on trust the thought of being drowned in a tsunami or dying of painful or cancer or something would be good for us in, in some way, but we don't know what way that is, and we just simply have to believe it. But remember that the, the discussion we're having at the moment is, is it reasonable for us to believe that in a world which contains tsunamis and childhood cancers and, and the rest, that there could be a, a being at least of great power and at least of, of, who understands and has some concern for our um, feelings and, and attitudes and so on, whether whether it's reasonable to believe that there could be such a being. And I'm suggesting that um, uh, there's a kind of incoherence in the idea of a being anything like the traditional attributes of God and a world of the kind that we 
we do in fact uh, occupy. Professor Pig says that there are three shortcomings to the probabilistic version of the argument of evil. And by the way, I should just mention that uh, um, uh, Professor Pig says that the current authorities in the field say that nobody now takes the logical problem of evil seriously. Well, long before that happened, people had stopped taking seriously the argument from authority, which is, as you know, a logical fallacy. So the fact that people, that the theologians are not taking the argument seriously doesn't seem to me a refutation of it. But, but having left that one aside, the probabilistic problem of evil. We're not in a position to assess inductively the probability, etc., etc. So this is a, an appeal to our finitude and our ignorance. So we don't know what those morally sufficient reasons would be. The second point, Christian theism entails doctrines that increase the probability of the coexistence of God and evil. But as I say, if you look at, uh, if you're going to look at it from a Christian perspective, if you look at it from the point of view of the canonical gospels, where we are told that God is almighty, that he is our Father, he's like our Father, heaven and Father, um, that he can do all things, that he cares about the least sparrow. He also says, by the way, also for those of you about to do schools, take no thought for tomorrow, you don't have to revise and so on. Um, he says all these very comforting things which give us, if we're going to start from a Christian perspective at any rate, a, a, a picture of a deity wholly inconsistent with the idea of uh, natural evil in the world, unless um, we accept that there is some enormously greater good that's going to be subserved by some of these terrible sufferings that are experienced in this world, um, and, and that we're just going to take on trust the fact that uh, there is that greater good, but we don't know what it is. And finally, um, uh, Professor Craig says that relative to the full scope of the evidence, not just the evidence of evil in the world, but to all the evidence that there is, that God's existence is probable, I would have thought that taking the full scope of the evidence into account about this uh, world of ours would have made the um, probability that there is a supernatural being of some kind in this universe infinitesimally, um, probability infinitesimally small. Um, one last thing, um, Professor Craig talks about uh, the defeater of the utilitarian argument residing in the fact that uh, we don't really know what the ultimate consequences are going to be of our actions. I can know what the you know, medium-term consequences are going to be, the difference between giving you an ice cream and kicking you on the ankle. I can tell that the one is going to probably be more pleasant for you than the other. So, uh, generally speaking, of course, when we're being utilitarian about our actions, we, we go by our best lights and by what's most likely in the course of our experience and so on. And what one doesn't want to do is to, to suffer uh, paralysis of moral action by butterfly effect. Because if I thought, just about to do something, just about to give you an ice cream, and I think to myself, oh, I better not do that, you know, because this could cause a storm over the Atlantic, or, you know, some great, great, great disaster will happen. Uh, and, you know, everything is so contingent that we, you, know, you best not do anything uh, at all. Well, of course, the fact of the matter is that uh, in this world of ours, our uh, understanding of uh, human nature and the human condition is pretty rich and, and good on the whole for all our purposes. Remember what John Locke said in the preface to his essay? He said that uh, the light that is set up in us shines bright enough for all our purposes. And generally speaking, as I, as I say, um, we're much more confident that ice creams are better than kicks on the ankle. So from, from that point of view, I think our grasp of moral realities is extendable to this idea, this debate that we're having about whether it's reasonable to think that a world such as ours, such as ours might have something that rather blurrily approximates to one or another of the conceptions of a, of, of a deity, even though, even though it's very hard to pin down just quite what that might be. 
Uh, um, this is not intended to be a commercial break, but I might just mention a, a recent um, book of mine in which I set forward a, a, an, a, an argument, among, among other arguments, about these matters, where I talk about the, uh, the, the perfumed smokescreen which lies between um, the ordinary believer who goes to church and is told that uh, God is a father and cares for you and he holds you in his hand and you need have no fear and that all is for the best in this the rest of all possible worlds as, as we're told. Uh, and the theological um, sophistication in those senses of the term of the arguments which try to show us that despite appearances, despite the facts, despite the realities of our existence in this world and our confrontation with how hard and harsh the world can be, nevertheless, fundamentally and ultimately, uh, it's all for our good. As Craig said that from the point of view of Christian theology, happiness is not the point. The point is not for you to be happy, at least in this life. There is a posthumous dispensation in which you will know ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment and joy. So there is a blank check. Uh, just if you, if you can endure, if you can accept, if you keep your faith despite the, the contrary evidence, then you can have a, a reasonable faith that in this future dispensation you will be happy. So happiness is the ultimate end, although it's not our happiness. It's not the happiness of ice creams and sunshine, but, um, well, I'm not sure what it might be, uh, endless hymn singing, or some, some alternative at any rate to what we normally take to be the happiness in this world. But, uh, but, I, but I think, remember that our point is about, about reasonableness. It's not my task as someone who doesn't believe in the existence of supernatural agencies in the universe to disprove the existence of such things. That's not my task. Nor is it my task to prove that the universe is only a natural realm. My task is merely to say that on, on any of the traditional understandings of uh, the notion of a deity or of such a supernatural being, even the most minimal one, which just requires of it, that it have the degree of insight and of, of uh, appreciation of our perspective of things, that it, it, is it reasonable to believe that there could be such a being and also that such a being could have any influence at all on what happens to creatures like us in this universe. Is it reasonable to believe in such a being consistently with the facts of the world as they are around us? And I say, I say not. But remember that that, again, to, to take a, a, a cue from Professor Craig there, that, that's a point made about the existence of natural evil in the world, but one could generalize it and say from the point of view of the total scope of the evidence, the reasonableness of believing such a thing. Uh, diminishes to zero. Thank you. You could be thinking of uh, questions, and as I say, we'll try and take uh, three questions together, and then we'll open up a, a dialogue uh, between the two. So, when you give your questions, will you speak? really loudly so we can pick them up and then I'll try and repeat them and make sure we've got them. So, first one here. Uh, back there at the right and uh, the middle, oh, second row there. Yes. Okay. Excellent questions to start with. I think uh, this is going to be a very good discussion. So, the first question was about uh, the free will being important and how that reflects in the logical problem of natural evil. The second was about the burden of proof. 
Are you innocent to prove guilty or guilty to prove innocent with respect to God? And thirdly, the actual question about do we have free will and can it be proved? Um, we'd like to uh, open up. I think the question about the burden of proof is the first one that needs to be tackled because that's the most fun, fundamental. Um, anyone who makes an assertion or a truth claim that he claims to know is making a claim to knowledge. Now, traditionally, knowledge has been defined as justified true belief. So if you make a claim to know something, you uh, need to have some sort of justification to believe in that. So if the atheist is claiming, with respect to the logical problem of evil, that these two propositions, A and B, are logically inconsistent, then he has the burden of proof to show that, because they're not logically inconsistent, prima facie, on their face. Um, one is not the negation of the other. So if he's saying they're implicitly contradictory, then he must be making these hidden assumptions. Now, in order for A and B to be logically incompatible, these hidden assumptions have to be true in every possible world. And so, as I say, there is an enormous burden of proof that the atheist has to bear here. When I suggest C as a proof that they are compatible, this is a supererogatory act that the theist isn't called upon to do. Uh, the, the theist can simply rest with neutrality, that no inconsistency has been proved, and, and can just simply sit back. But if the theist wants to go further and say, yes, they are compatible, then he needs to come up with something like C as a means of showing the compatibility of A and B. So I tried to bear my share of the burden of proof tonight, uh, and, and the atheist needs to bear his share too. But would you accept that, uh, Professor? Uh, well, on the question of burden of proof, uh, no, because uh, as I see it, the question is the rationality of uh, thinking that, that the concept applies to something. Is it rational to think that there might be something to answer, that answers to the concept of a Somehow That's, I take, to be the point of your occasion tonight, and I take it that um, we're not in the business of proving or disproving the existence of the deity, we're just asking whether if there were some such thing that it could be consistent with the existence of that human being. Um, and so far as the point uh, goes concerning the uh, um, uh, alleged antinomy, alleged by the alleged by the deist to be alleged by the atheist. Um, the, the, the same points, the, the same strategy that we adopted there as is adopted by Kant in the critique of pure reasoning in our letter to New York Times Antinomies, which is get a suitable definition of the terms in the apparent proposition the proposition is resolved. And so that's my difficulty, because my difficulty there is that I don't have a clear perception of what, of what it is that God is, that omnipotence is, that omnipotence is, but by, by means of which you can escape um, the problem posed by asking, is it rational to think that there could be a being, vaguely speaking, that is interested in concerning us consistently with uh, the natural you know, I think it's important to see that these are distinct questions. When you start talking about is it rational, is it reasonable fully, then you, I think, move to the probabilistic version. Uh, in terms of the logical version, we're talking about whether or not a person who affirms these two propositions is incoherent. Is he somebody who like believes in a round square or a married bachelor? And if the atheist wants to say that he is, then the atheist needs to prove that, that there is a contradiction there. And this has been typically what 
atheists have tried to do. The late J.L. Mackey, as you know, here at Oxford University, tried to press this logical version of the problem of evil, and it was his work that really evoked Alvin Flanagan's free uh, will defense. And I think Flanagan's really successfully shown that the no theist or atheist is able to, to bear so heavy a burden of proof, and that's why the debate has moved into this other question, is it reasonable, as you put it, is it rational to think that uh, a, a good and omnipotent being exists in light of the evil and the world? There's a, um, a video, in fact, of J.R. Matthew and Alvin Patrick yeah. walking very slowly up and down the lawn of the Fellows Garden University uh, in parallel lines, you know, parallel lines there, and he's neither with Matthew nor Flanagan, that they were talking about quite different conceptions of omnipotence, and I think that is the difficulty here. That, that what, what the theist wants is, a, is to, uh, if he's not going to, to give up uh, the idea that the deity is omnipotent, which is the strategy that we all have to Right, and I wouldn't, I, I'm not taking that, that route, no. You, you don't want that. So you've got to have a conception of omnipotence in which, nevertheless, um, there are things that God can't do. That's the, that's the trick. Yeah, well, now see, we need to be careful because things like a logical, or, or rather, things like a square circle, a married bachelor, a round triangle aren't really things. So I do think God can do anything. But these, these are not things, they're just, they're just combinations of words that have no referent. So I'm, I'm sticking with the classical conception of omnipotence that has been enunciated by Thomas Aquinas and Anselm and all the rest. I'm not backing away, as some of these modern theologians do. Um, on the contrary, but if, if you are wanting to go with this very strong Cartesian definition of omniscience, uh, omnipotence, where God can do logical impossibilities, then there just isn't any problem of evil because he can do logical contradictions. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you there. Um, I, I, I don't think that it's reasonable to expect that a God is only omnipotent if he can make green sleep curiously, let's say. Uh -huh. you say. If it's just a matter of, uh, of terminologies, uh, it doesn't take a God, I and mean, plenty of women have turned bachelors into married men, so that's a different thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, but I, I think if, if, we, if we were to take a, a more substantive example of what would be um, possible or impossible for uh, an omnipotent deity rather than just a, 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 a diplomatical example. Um, and, and I think the round square is, is like the you know, Stephen Jewish. Um, then, then you, I think, would have to respond to the thought that if, it, if it's logically possible that there should be a world containing three individuals and where there is no natural human, that that's logically possible. Then the point that you make about should not be feasible for God carries the weight of the argument. Now, you have to say, say it again. You, you, you have to give us an account of why it would not be feasible for God to create uh, a world in which there is both free will and an absence of natural evil. Yeah. Given that that's what's possible. Yeah. I don't, I don't seem to think that there's any reason to think that that would be feasible to have a world of uh, free will. Um, Without natural evil, see that, that's difficult. Now it might be infeasible because it might be that any worlds of free creatures in which there is no natural evil, some of these creatures go wrong, and so you have moral evil in those worlds. Uh, and, and and so if there were a world with no natural evil, maybe they would be worse worlds because they would have you know moral evil in them. So these two things sort of play off against each other. This is the question that was asked here. Uh, I mean, certainly God could create a universe with no natural evil in it, 
uh, he could create a, a world that consisted just of a single bowling ball floating in outer space. That would be a world with no natural evil, but it would be a very uninteresting world. I mean, what we want to know is could God create a world in which there are moral agents with free will who can create a significant amount of moral good, and yet with less natural evil in it? And I think we really have no idea of whether that's feasible. Uh, and moreover, that relates to the second assumption, God might have good reasons for permitting a lot of this natural evil in a world with free creatures. And I think, as a Christian, that it's related to the kingdom of God, that God wants to bring the maximum number of people freely into his kingdom. And I don't find it at all implausible to think that natural evil and, and moral evil could be a, a part of the circumstances in which he, 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 which he uses to do this. We covered those two of the questions in terms of free will and, and a little bit on natural evil. What about the point over there about uh, is God innocent and to, to prove guilty? Well, that was the first question about burden of proof. Right. But we haven't really talked about why we believe in free will, or if we do, I don't know your position on that, actually. Uh, well, if you get my hands to Paul and Kurt and Tanner, we're all very familiar since almost everybody in this world has written an essay and tried to make the question of and determinism before now. How long have we got? <laughs> We've got the weekend, it's hard to back on the weekend. So uh, I'm going to stay on the weekend. I mean, I think, I think the short answer is this, that uh, in order to make intelligible for ourselves the idea of occupying a moral universe, that our social universe is a moral universe, that it makes sense to say to people, you know, we'll be praised for blame for what they do, and we'll be punished for what they do. Uh, and in order to give content to the way that we evaluate and judge actions and characters, we really need to think that it's possible for, for people to do other than they do when they make choices. So it looks as though the concept of free will is uh, essential to our thinking in terms of the possibility of morality at all. Um, and it may very well be that uh, the, the problem with this, just in very shorthand, is the kind of solution that I might prefer. But the, the vocabulary of, um, uh, of morality requires, it does free will, is uh, an incommensurable vocabulary with respect to the vocabulary of natural law and causality, which is where the idea of determinism arises. And just to explain that very, very briefly, imagine you have two people standing at the side of a, of a field. Now, one of them uh, talks about the occurrences on the field in terms of the velocity of objects at a certain mass, interacting with one another in certain ways, emitting radiation at certain frequencies, and so on. And the second person describes it as a bugbear match. But it might be that in the vocabulary of the second person, the sociological vocabulary, there are terms like a goal, point, triangle, scrum, and so on, which cannot be translated into any of the language of physics, and vice versa. And yet, in some respects, they're about the same thing. So, a deterministic, causal, natural law account of the world, and a sociological, scope, moral account of the world, and focus upon the same thing. They're co-referential, but they differ deeply in sense because they have different, different purposes. That would be the answer I would give. Now, quite a useful one for school. I, 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 was, I thought I was tracking with you until the rugby illustration. That's uh, because in no, no, it's not that. It's not that. It's that, uh, that what the illustration suggests, and what I think then you must believe, is that in fact, although morality requires the belief that we are free, you don't really think that we are. That physics will give a thoroughly deterministic and complete account of why we make decisions we do in terms of brain waves, electricity, neurons firing, and so forth. Everything is determined, but that 
language of morality is just a way of talking about these in a different way, like talking about the physics of these footballers in terms of game vocabulary. And, and that is really a deterministic view of, of human beings that really says that this talk of morality is, is ultimately illusory, but unfortunately necessary for us if we're to act morally. Is that your view, or do you think that we really do have libertarian free will? No, uh, I think that uh, um, in just the way that uh, something like Carla, for example, said, if, if you ask me the question, do numbers exist? I say, yes, they do. If you ask me, do tables exist? I say, yes, they do. If you ask me, do numbers and tables exist? And I say, do you mean in the same realm, in the way that the tables do in the physical realm and numbers do in the arithmetical realm? Then the answer is, you're muddling two, two different kinds of questions. You have to believe the existence of numbers in order to do everything. You have to believe the existence of tables in order to do complex physics. And just the same way as to do morality, you have to take very seriously the idea and commit yourself to the idea yeah. that uh, agents of free will, just as you have to commit yourself to the idea of causality when you talk about great physics. So, I mean, yes, you take, you take them very seriously. But the question um, of, of trying to reduce one to the other is precisely the source of our muddle about these things, just as they would be if you said numbers would only exist if, in some sense, they existed in the same way the tables do, or vice versa. Yeah, I'm still not happy with that. Let me just say why I do, one reason I do believe in And then we'll take some more questions. Right. Uh, and that is, I think, um, determinism is uh, rationally unaffirmable. Because the person who finds himself believing in determinism has to think that his belief in determinism is just determined. That it's not the result of a rational process. It's like having a toothache uh, or a limb growing out of a tree. And therefore, if you believe in determinism, you ultimately have to believe that your belief in determinism is itself determined and therefore irrational. And therefore, determinism cannot be rationally affirmed, I think. And so I, I'm a, a, a libertarian. So may I just say... A proposing point on this. Yes, exactly. If you believe in determinism, which, which I, I would but if you believe in determinism, <laughs> then, then it would be true that you would be determined to believe in determinism. But that wouldn't be irrational, that would just be non-rational. I think we'll close it to that point and, and have some more questions. I must say, I find it terribly difficult to believe that uh, you know, an infant uh, could have committed such grievous sins that uh, it deserved being grounded in tsunami and having recently. And so the idea of natural evil as a, a just punishment from God makes that um, the idea of the being who would do such a thing even less agreeable than the, than the I'd like to address that first question as well, uh, because had I had more time, in developing my third point about the probabilistic version of the problem of evil, uh, I would have appealed to an argument, a moral argument for the existence of God, as one of the reasons to believe that God exists, that uh, is on the other side of the scale, so that even if evil presents a certain weight against the existence of God, I think it's outweighed by these other arguments on the other side of the scale for God. And one of these would be uh, a moral argument. And uh, I think that evil actually proves the existence of God. I think there's actually an argument for God from evil. And here's how it would go. Premise one, if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. And what I mean by his objective is a values that hold and are binding independently of whether anybody believes in them or not. 
And I think many theists and atheists alike agree on this. I could give you citations that in the absence of God, um, moral values become just the spin-offs of sociobiological evolution, uh, similar to the altruistic behavior exhibited in a pack of baboons, where it's beneficial for the species to act in altruistic ways. So that apart from God, it's hard to see how you can escape sociocultural relativism. Uh, if God does not exist, I think it's plausible that objective moral values do not exist. Second premise is evil exists. Namely, some things really are wrong, and take your list of them. From that it follows premise three, therefore, objective moral values exist. Namely, some things are actually evil, and therefore, four, God exists. So, if those first two premises are true, it follows that evil actually serves to demonstrate the existence of God. So while evil superficially seems to call into question God's existence, I think on a deeper level, uh, evil actually serves to prove God's existence because in the absence of God, there really isn't any good or evil, per se, in the universe. Um, could I say something about the wrath? Well, if you want to respond to that. May I respond to that? Because yes. I think it's a very important point. Because yes. Um, I think uh, insofar as any facts about human beings, so if it's an objective fact, if the, if the adjective objective applies here, that human beings, generally speaking, have noses and ears and things, if, if these are objective facts, then there are objective facts about human nature, human needs and interests, the human condition. I mean, things like, for example, human beings need for play, for relationships, for affection, for warmth, for comfort, for security. Um, these are all facts about human beings, which make moral demands on other human beings. I mean, if I know that you're a human being, you're a sensitive, sentient, thinking creature, uh, and that you're capable of suffering and capable of pleasure, and I know that giving you the nice room and taking you out of the way and all those things will conduce to your, to your benefit in some way, then I see that as an obligation, as an imposing obligation on me to act accordingly. Every right has this obverse an obligation. So it seems to me that insofar as those things are objective, then there are objective moral values. Where the difference comes in between uh, a theological conception of morality and this one is that um, it's possible to believe that our understanding, our insight, might mature and evolve through history. Um, and in fact, I think that, that uh, theologically-based morality does this too. After all, in Leviticus 22 or something like that, it says that if a man sleeps with another man or with a woman, kill him. Now, we don't do that anymore, mercifully. And that's because we've evolved our understanding of these um, descriptions, and so we behave differently. And so these soci social, social facts make a change even in the interpretation of theologically-based um, morality. But it seems to me that all we're doing is we are um, taking a, a different, and I hope more considered and mature and sympathetic view about human nature and its needs and interests, but still responding to what are objective facts out there in the world. So from that point of view, you can be fully objective in your morality, without having to invoke the existence again. Yeah. So I wouldn't call those objective at all. Well, I think that's exactly the point that these uh, evolutionists or sociobiologists like Michael Roos, for example, are making. Uh, he would say if you rewound the film of evolution, so to speak, and let the process run again, you might evolve a very different kind of creature than Homo sapiens with a very different set of values. And for Homo sapiens to think that human beings are intrinsically valuable or have certain moral duties and obligations is to be guilty of speciesism, uh, kind of akin to racism, you know, favoring your own species and thinking it's especially 
valuable. And Roos wrote an especially interesting article called Is Rape Wrong on Andromeda? in which he argued that while rape may be a constant in human societies as a result of our sociobiological evolution, there we could well imagine a race of intelligent extraterrestrials for whom rape was not uh, a moral constant. And if these beings were to come to Earth and, say, began to rape throughout the Earth or maybe even use us uh, for laboring animals or as food as uh, we do cattle and pigs, what could we say to them? Uh, if we said, but we human beings think this is wrong to do that, they would just reply, well, that's just a product of your sociobiological evolution. There's nothing particularly objective about that morality, uh, and there's no reason that we should regard that as, uh, as true. Uh, that's just your own speciesism. Uh, and so I don't think that that gives uh, a really objective foundation for... Uh, for moral values. It, on the contrary, I think that's exactly what I was saying, is that if God doesn't exist, then we're just animals. We're just relatively advanced primates, and animals aren't moral agents uh, and don't have moral duties. And I don't see that we do either. The, these are just ingrained to us by evolution and the survival of this species. Um, um, I, I agree with you that we're animals and uh, an advanced form. Well, yeah, I'm atheist, I said. That's not my... I just, I just, I just dropped the just thing. Mm -hmm. If there is a God, then we're just animals. Uh -huh. okay, that's fine. I um, so, uh, but I think that there, my, my problem is that... Um, look, just take the rape point, for example. Uh, now, here is an historical fact about the evolution of moral thinking about rape, that uh, it was once, and until relatively recently, thought in the Catholic doctrine, that rape wasn't as bad as masturbation, because at least rape could issue in, conscious, in, in conception. So, so from a moral theological point of view, uh, there was that distinction. And of course, in the past, it was regarded as perfectly acceptable for men to uh, carry off women if they needed a wife or wearing a mood or something. There's a, there's a fragment from uh, um, one of the ancient cities of, of uh, Syria saying that at a certain season of the year, no, no man felt like taking a woman in the street because this was a very bad bit of news for the men at the time. Perhaps the women at the time didn't mind. At any rate, there were you know, very different conceptions of these things, and they involved too, even in the context of, of, of uh, um, theological morality. But I, no, I, I just, it just seems to me to be, if, if it's a, you know, I put the point about uh, human possession of noses as being an objective fact about human beings in the same category as. Uh, human interests, needs, desires, feelings, sentiments, capacity for enjoyment, pain, and so on. I put them on the same plane because they seem to me to be natural facts, naturalistically conceived facts about human beings, and that, that they provide a basis for us for thinking about um, appropriate responses to them. So, if, for example, some, you saw somebody lying on the, on the floor wailing and, and in pain and everything else, and you thought to yourself, "What should I do about this situation?" And supposing the alternatives that presented themselves were one to go up to them and help them and the other was to kick them, then, you know, somehow or other, the facts about their situation seem to constrain which choice you should make. And, and that seems to me a very powerful basis for thinking about mutual respect and kindness. Let, let me pick up on your example, because I think it's, it's illustrative. On the atheistic view, I think it's impossible to contrast that ancient society's values with what we think today, and to say that moral progress has been made. Because that would be to make a judgment on their views or their, their attitudes compared to ours, what you can say is moral change has occurred, but it would be impossible to say that there's been genuine moral progress because there is no objective standard 
by which to measure it. So, again, you're just lost in sociocultural relativism, and these ancient Syrians will say our view of sexual uh, relations to women is different from yours, and it's just as good. In fact, what they would do, uh, Professor Grayling, is they would look at the animal kingdom, and they would say acts that look very much like rape go on all the time in the animal kingdom. If a male animal is uh, prepared to force himself upon a female uh, on occasion, he, as a more stronger animal, is more likely to propagate his genes and hence uh, issue in progeny so that he has a selective advantage by doing this. And so I think that this attempt to root moral values in uh, sociobiology is just really uh, horrid <laughs> uh, and, and ultimately uh, uh, leaves us, I think, with a position of saying that there isn't really any objective moral truths uh, and that moral progress and moral blame and things like this become just subjective and, and relative. Two, two very quick points. Can you finish yeah, on very, this very, one? Very yeah. quick. Um, on the business of the, the male animals and all the rest of it, you obviously haven't been observing how pigeons behave in the breeding season, which is very different to female and doesn't choose men. Um, I, I used to think that I wouldn't at all mind living in classical Athens if I could take my dentist and his equipment with me. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but then I think to myself, well, just so long as I wasn't born a woman or a slave or a non-Athenian or... Well, and if you survived as an infant since they practiced infanticide. Exactly. So, yes, exactly. So I think that we've made a lot of moral progress since that time. You help me with my point. <laughs> do, do you um, perhaps briefly want to cover the... Uh, is God's knowledge satisfied or his plan satisfied in the death of, of atheists? Yeah, well, I would just and, say and that God, that struck me as a bizarre question, and no, I don't think the knowledge of God requires the extermination of man. I want to say, though, about the God's wrath question, I don't want to back away from God's wrath. I, I think that God is a just and holy God who punishes sin and evil. And ultimately, this is our hope that we do live in a moral universe after all, that evil will be conquered, evil will be punished and dealt with. But it is presumptuous on our part, anytime we see an act of evil in the world, to say, oh, this is God's judgment on that person. And you're shaking your head, you probably weren't asking that then. Uh, so that's fine. I, I, I just don't want us to, want folks to think that one is uh, being presumptuous. I, I think one always extends acts of mercy uh, toward the suffering. This is our moral duty. That's, uh, again, one of the differences between Christianity and utilitarianism when you see someone suffer, you're not paralyzed by the consequences. That's the utilitarian who's paralyzed because he doesn't know what the consequences are going to be. But the Christian acts on the maxim, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, regardless of the consequences. In the interest of time, we need to move on a little bit. Uh, the galleries are very important, and we don't want to ignore them from the top. Two questions. Right, so the question, why did the tsunami happen? Second question. So it's about multiple paths of life. Yeah. And... The question's about, will one of them reach the right goal? Is that... Yes. Yeah. Okay, is there, is there one more over that back? Could God make there be no moral evil? Okay, can we? Can you keep your comments very concise in these comments? Uh, don't start. Yeah, I'll try to. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I don't think that the occurrence of the tsunami was arbitrary. Uh, it happened because of the movement of the tectonic plate of the earth. I mean, there are good physical explanations as to why it happened. Sorry? Uh, morally. Oh, morally, actually, yes. And morally indifferent, I think, is the, is, is 
which are in itself is just something that happened, and in the, its consequences were very tragic for a large number of people. Um, tragic, but also when you think of the outpourings of sympathy and the support there was from around the world, uh, you know, every cloud and so on. The second question was about. It's about the multiple possibilities. Yes, indeed, indeed. Uh, the, 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 point is that, yeah, the, the, the point about that story is that uh, it has a false premise to it, which is that it was the, the, the way the doors slid on that particular occasion that determined the two quite different narratives. But of course, the doors are always sliding, so you don't catch the train again the next day and the next day and so on. So that at, at every point, at every node uh, in our existence is one in which there are a large number of possibilities, as your question implies. And um, I think there are two things to think about here. One is, as the, um, the Chinese sage Sun Tzu said, um, every opportunity taken is 12 opportunities made, so you know, it doesn't much matter which one you, you take the one you make the best of it. And, and the other thing is that, because the idea of a, of a human life is the idea of an attempt to um, uh, impose a kind of narrative on it, to tell a story. And part of the story that uh, a lot of people here are engaged in is finishing a degree and going on to the world of work and so on. So whether or not you miss the train at that particular occasion, the, the, the super narrative might nevertheless still unfold because you've got these larger and longer intentions in play. So, um, you know, I, I think that the idea of uh, the, the arbitrariness or, or um, crucial moments in, in life, um, although certainly they do become time time happen, it is not such a significant idea. With respect to the question about the tsunami, I can no more answer the question why the tsunami happened than I can answer the question why did World War II happen. Uh, it would be presumptuous to think that one could answer that. But I think what one can say, uh, from a Christian point of view, is that overall this fits into God's master plan of building the kingdom of God. And that in some way, these natural disasters and, and wars and things of this sort are permitted with a view towards God's bringing the maximum number of people freely into relationship with himself. And his morally sufficient reasons for that will be varied and multiple and may be even centuries removed from now. Uh, and that's what the second question saw. And I'm so pleased that the second questioner was staggered by the complexity of this. Because so often students will say, well, why couldn't God just prevent this evil? Or why couldn't he just pull that out of the world? And they don't understand this inextricably woven web of contingencies uh, to, to bring about the existence of a single event in history. When you, you trace the web of contingencies that you describe in that Chinese maxim, uh, it, it would require an infinite intelligence to do this. It would require an omniscient mind. And that's exactly what the theist believes God is. And there's a theory about this divine omniscience called middle knowledge. If you're interested, there's a lot of stuff on my website about it. And this middle knowledge perspective says that God knows all true counterfactuals of creaturely freedom. That is to say, he knows how every free creature would act in whatever circumstances he were to place that creature in. So that given that kind of middle knowledge, that kind of omniscience, God can sovereignly direct the world of free creatures to ultimately achieve his ends, even though that may mean that he has to allow evil and suffering and so forth along the way. He, he, he is building his kingdom of God, and uh, it, it will ultimately triumph. Now, with respect to the last question about feasibility, certainly God could make a world without moral evil. 
if he created a world in which there was no higher form of life than rabbits, there would be no moral evil in that world. But we don't know that he could create a world of significant moral agents endowed with freedom of the will, which would be a world without moral evil. Because once he creates those free moral agents, he has to stand back and let them act. Because it's logically impossible to make someone choose freely a certain course of action. Uh, so um, it may well be the case that there is not a world involving this much moral good in it, but without also this much moral evil. Two very quick responses by me. Um, I'm, I'm not so sure about the rabbits. I mean, God has always been against promiscuity, as you know. Oh. <laughs> but, but he says to the animals in Genesis, be fruitful and multiply. Well, that's one reason why I think that we're animals, too. Uh, <laughs> um, what, one thing that really interests me about um, uh, Ms. Drake's answer to the point about the complexity of the world well, there are two things, actually. One is about the place in that view of uh, miracles, which are, as you yes. know, conventions in a, a tremendously complex world that presumably um, would change everything radically on the sort of butterfly basis. But, but the other thing is that you're uh, premising um, God's action in time. And, uh, I mean, I don't know what, again, what conception of God will work yeah. here, but one traditional conception of God is that he's eternal, he's outside time, right. uh, and therefore the whole of history from its beginning to its end is already present in God and so on. And so the idea of him sort of working out things, and have a, let's have a, we have a tsunami after a few million years and we'll do this and so on, just to make everything work out for the good, is inconsistent with that idea. Uh, my research project that I pursued just before my present research interest, I, I worked for 13 years on the question of God and time. And I've published six books on this subject, so this is one that's very near and dear to me. Uh, and um, Keep it brief. All right, all right. <laughs> uh, my view is that God is timeless without creation, but temporal since the moment of creation. That the decision to create a world was a decision to enter into temporal relations with uh, temporal beings, and therefore God exists now. That's 13 books uh, condensed. In a <laughs> I'm sorry, but uh, time has moved on. We have summing up speeches, and both speakers will be available afterwards. Uh, I'm sure if you have further questions, you'd like to come up and, and ask for a, a little while. But um, we'll do the summing up from here. I think it will be easier. Um, so I'd like to ask both speakers, starting with Professor Craig uh, and then Professor Grayling, to speak uh, for up to five minutes just summarizing the key points they'd like to leave us with today. I think it's clear in tonight's debate that there is no logical problem of evil anymore. That the atheist has not been able to demonstrate that God and evil are incompatible with each other. That on the contrary, the theist can offer a possible explanation that proves the compatibility of God and evil. Or I think we've seen on the probabilistic version of the problem of evil that the atheist makes enormously presumptuous probability judgments that we're simply not in a position to make with any confidence. And I gave a number of illustrations. I think as well that if the Christian God exists, then it's not at all improbable that evil exists because the purpose of life is not to become happy in this life and that God's purpose even spills over into eternal life. And finally, we've not looked at all tonight at arguments for the existence of God, except for that argument for the existence of God from evil, which is important. 
And I think when you look at on balance the arguments for God's existence, uh, they make God's existence quite probable. But tonight I focused entirely on the intellectual problem of evil. Uh, and I'm convinced that for most people, the problem of evil is not really an intellectual problem at all. I think it's really an emotional problem. And so I want to ask in my closing statement, does Christian theism have the resources to deal with this emotional problem? And I think it certainly does. Because it tells us that God is not a distant creator or an unmoved ground of being, but uh, a loving Heavenly Father who shares our sufferings. Alvin Plantinga has said, as the Christian sees things, God does not stand idly by, coolly observing the sufferings of his creatures. He enters into and shares our suffering. He endures the anguish of seeing his son consigned to the bitterly cruel and shameful death of the cross. Christ was prepared to endure the agonies of hell itself in order to overcome sin and death and the evils that afflict our world, and to confer on us a life more glorious than we can imagine. He was prepared to suffer on our behalf, to accept suffering of which we can form no conception. You see, Christ endured a suffering which is literally beyond understanding. He bore the punishment for the sin of the whole world. And none of us can understand that kind of suffering. Even though he was innocent, he voluntarily took upon himself incomprehensible suffering for our sake. And why? Because he loves us so much. How can we reject him who was willing to give up everything for us? I think when we contemplate Christ's sacrifice and his love for us, this puts the problem of evil in a totally different perspective because we now see that the true problem of evil is the problem of our evil. Filled with sin and morally guilty before God, the question is not how God can justify himself to us. The question is how we can be justified before him. So when God asks us to undergo suffering that seems pointless or unnecessary, I think meditation upon the cross of Christ can help to give us the moral strength and courage that we need to bear the cross that we're asked to carry. And I'm reminded in this connection of a woman uh, whom one of my faculty colleagues encountered in periodic visits to a nursing home. This woman had been confined there in a wheelchair for 25 years. She was blind and nearly deaf. Her face was being eaten by cancer so that the right side of her face was dropped and she drooled constantly. Yet to his surprise, he discovered that she had a perfectly lucid mind. And he was also surprised to discover that she was a Christian. Her name was Mabel. As my colleague continued his visits to the nursing home, his attitude began to change from the idea that he was being helpful to the realization that Mabel was actually ministering to him. And he began to write down the things that she said. Well, one day as he was preparing for final examinations and his mind felt pulled in a thousand directions at once, the thought struck him, I wonder what Mabel thinks about lying there all day. And so he went to ask her, and this is what she said. I think about my Jesus. My colleague sat there silently uh, for a minute, and then he asked, what do you think about Jesus? And she answered, I think how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me in my life, you know. I'm one of those kind who's mostly satisfied. Lots of folks would think I'm kind of old-fashioned, but I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me. And then she began to sing an old hymn. My colleague, stunned, later wrote, This is not fiction. Incredible as it may seem, a human being really lived like this. I know, I knew her. How could she do it? 
Seconds ticked and minutes crawled, and so did days and weeks and months and years of pain, without human company and without an explanation of why it was all happening. And she lay there and sang hymns. How could she do it? My colleague concluded, the answer, I think, is that Mabel had something you and I don't have very much of. She had power. Lying there in that bed, unable to move, unable to see, unable to hear, she had incredible power. I think that although paradoxically evil is the greatest obstacle to belief in God, at the end of the day, God is the only solution to the problem of evil. If God does not exist, then we are locked without hope in a world filled with gratuitous and unredeemed suffering. But if God exists, he is the final answer to the problem of evil because he redeems us from evil and takes us into the everlasting joy of an incommensurable good, which is fellowship with himself. Perhaps you were brought up in that tradition, or perhaps you turned to it at the moment of crisis in your life. 
then almost anything follows. A belief in an omnipotent and benevolent deity under whatever descriptions those things might have has exactly the same logical power as accepting a contradiction does. Otherwise, anything follows, anything is possible. Any, any apparently inconsistent and irrational things can be reconciled and accepted in the light of that faith. Simply by, by moving in and out the shadows and the light, we know some things that God loves us, and we don't know plenty of other things why certain things happen in the world. And with this um, armory, really, this um, it's a rhetorical rather than a logical armory, you can, you can do what Professor Craig has so eloquently done, and that is you can, you can assert a position, and then on the basis of it, you can say something which is very, very uplifting and moving into the, the story which witnesses the power of, of that faith. But it seems to me that although it's harder and in some ways starker uh, to try always to proportion beliefs to evidence, to look around you, to look at the world, to look at history, to look at the action in the world of those organizations and individuals who have laid claim to faith and those who haven't and so on. And proportion one's belief to the evidence. And one takes a secular, humanist, non-religious view of the world, one nevertheless finds it better and deeper reasons for wanting to respect uh, one's fellow men and women and wanting to try to do something in the world which ameliorates the the harshness of things in this world. And concern for others and, and, and kindness towards them, giving them the benefit of the doubt always because they are my few individuals who have needs and, and interests and with which you can sympathize. There's very, very simple, very deep intuitions about this common experience we have of being human in the world. It seems to me to be a very, very powerful source of, uh, of fellowship and of morality. And one needs nothing more than that. And I've often thought to myself, if I see two people acting with concern towards their fellow human beings, and one does it just out of a, a sense of fellow feeling or, or an empathetic insight into the suffering of the other person, and the second person does it because of some ideological commitment or, or faith or belief or desire to, um, at worst, just all sorts of grounding points as the case might be, um, I find that my respect for the first person is always much greater. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org.